Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. A white police officer's killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis has sparked nationwide protests for justice. Attacks by officers on protesters across the country have only amplified outrage over systemic racism and police brutality. Combined with the economic and social impact of the ongoing coronavirus crisis, it is a time of anger and despair. And meanwhile, amidst the suffering and repression at home, the U.S. government, in bipartisan fashion, continues to attempt to impose its will on countries abroad, from Venezuela to China. Well, to discuss, I spoke earlier with Dr. Gerald Horn, Morris Professor of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston, author of more than three dozen books, including his latest, which comes out in July, The Dawning of the Apocalypse. Dr. Horn, Welcome to Pushback. Let me start by asking you your response to the unprecedented, in recent years at least, protests that we're seeing across the country following the police killing of George Floyd. Well, first of all, to state the obvious, it obviously represents a kind of collective snapping on the part of the black community and its allies. That is to say that what was unremarkable about the murder on tape of George Floyd was precisely how unremarkable it was, how we become somewhat desensitized in light of Eric Garner being slain in Staten Island in 2014 and Philando Castile in Minnesota just a few years ago. But there's a deeper question that I'm afraid to say that even some of our friends on the left have not been able to explore. That is to say that one of the reasons why it's repetitively black men who are being killed is that it ties directly into the history, the bloodstained history of this country. That is to say that when the colonies revolted against London in 1776, one of the motive forces, as I said in my book, The Counter-Revolution of 1776, was this idea that London was moving towards abolition of slavery, which would jeopardize the fortunes of George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and the lawyer for slave owners, John Adams rather than see that eventuate, they rebelled. Africans, by several orders of magnitude, oppose the formation of the United States of America, and ever since then have been viewed as a threat to the status quo. That continues to this very day when black people generally, and black men in particular, are seen as threats, prospective criminals, and is that what led directly to the slaying of George Floyd just a few days ago in Minneapolis. In terms of the protests that we're seeing right now, can you put them in a historical context? How do they compare to the protests we saw, especially in the civil rights era? Uh, one thing I noticed, at least in the early stages of these protests now, is that there's not a lot of coordination and planning from above. Everything seems pretty spontaneous. I'm wondering if you agree with that. Well, I think that's a direct reaction to the fact that whenever there is a centralized organization like the Black Panther Party in the 1960s, they're crushed relentlessly. And so that has led inexorably to a kind of decentralized protest, a kind of leaderless protest. I would compare what's going on in the United States as we speak to what happened after the slaying of Martin Luther King on April 4th, 1968. Uh, then, as now, there was an eruption of protests from the Atlantic to the Pacific. But one of the distinguishing factors, I would say, of what's going on today 
are the attacks on symbols of power. That is to say, the attack on the police precinct in Minneapolis, the surrounding of the White House, uh, which has been a theme over the last 48 hours and has led to a kind of hysteria, uh, more hysterical than usual on the part of the 45th president, the breaching of the security of the State House in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, this is quite significant, this attack on state power. And I think that is something that we all need to mull over quite deeply. You mentioned the crushing of the Black Panthers. What has been the lasting impact of that? And that plus the fact that you have, when you have high profile black leaders like Fred Hampton, Dr. King, Malcolm X, they get assassinated. Well, obviously the crushing of the Black Panthers was a profound and significant blow not only to the black liberation movement, but I would say to the US left in general, it's left a gaping hole. It was also attacked on the socialist oriented ideology of the Black Panther Party, which it had brought and delivered to the black community. And it was a follow on to the socialist, socialist ideology that had been brought to the black community by people like Paul Robeson, who of course was also crushed. And so I think it's fair to say that this crushing of socialist ideology has ill-prepared the United States to deal with the current moment where we obviously need a strong role for government, particularly in the area of public health, that socialism tends to project. I would also say that the crushing of the Black Panther Party has also created fertile soil for the rising of various kinds of narrowness in terms of ideology and we continue to be hampered by that narrowness as we speak. There have been concerns about agents provocateurs inside the protest. There was that one incident in Minneapolis where there was a suspicious looking white man smashing windows at the AutoZone. Not confirmed who that person is, but there was some speculation that he worked with police. Given history, how big of a concern should that be? Well, it should be a concern. I mean, we, we know, for example, referencing our discussion about the Black Panther Party, that they were subjected to the so-called counterintelligence program or COINTELPRO, spearheaded by the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI, initially targeting people in the orbit of the Communist Party, such as Paul Robeson, but eventually expanding its remit to include not only uh, the Black Panther Party, Martin Luther King Jr., and just about anyone who was perceived as a threat to the status quo. So given that ugly history, I think we would be derelict and delinquent if we just glossed over that scene from the auto zone. But at the same time, until details can be confirmed, I think we should be restrained in terms of our analysis of that particular episode. And when we see small businesses being looted and burnt, especially black-owned businesses in places like Minneapolis. I saw one place where a black firefighter and his wife had raised money to open up a sports bar. It was about to open, then the core, then 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 the coronavirus crisis hit, and then during the protests, his bar got looted. Is there a historical precedent we can draw on to organize effectively to avoid things like that happening? <laughs> well, it's interesting. You know, in my book on Watts, 1965 which was probably the most significant uh, 
chapter in the history of those long hot summers of some decades ago, what happened was that the protesters consciously and intentionally tried to avoid attacking those kinds of businesses that you just made reference to. They consciously and intentionally tried to attack businesses that were seen as exploitative, uh, businesses that were seen as tyrannical in terms of their confrontations with the surrounding community. I think that that particular chapter needs to be updated. On the other hand, I think that as, a, as we speak, we should make sure that insurance companies are pressured to deliver on the premiums that small business owners have been paying precisely to anticipate this kind of unrest. I mean, for example, in today's New York Times, that is to say May 31st, 2020, there is an article about a Bangladeshi or Bengali restaurateur uh, who said that he was not necessarily upset with his business being destroyed because he was in solidarity with the protesters. The article did not say that, say what I'm about to say, which is that I assume that he could be uh, somewhat, uh, shall we say, cavalier with regard to his business being destroyed because he probably had a, a sound insurance policy and he's probably confident that the insurance will pay out. Uh, we should make sure that that kind of ending, that is to say insurance companies being forced to pay out based upon premiums being paid for years, also helps to uh, encompass these black business owners as well. There's also been talk during these protests of outside forces being responsible. You had the mayor of St. Paul. He initially said that pretty much all those who were arrested were from out of state. He later retracted that after claiming that he was given false information. And then you have people, uh, especially in the you know centrist crowd of, of the Democratic Party, who have spent you know three years now blaming Russia for all their problems, including their their loss in 2016 and many other problems. And so you have them also saying that this could be the work of Russia. I would bet based on my experience, I'm not reading the intelligence uh, today uh, or these days, but based on my experience, this is right out of the Russian playbook as well. Their aim is not simply to embarrass the United States, Wolf. Their aim is to divide us, to cause us to come into combat with each other, to disintegrate from within. And I would not be surprised to learn that they have fomented some of these extremists on both sides using social media. I wouldn't be surprised to learn uh, that they're funding it in some way, shape or form. So I'll read you an example. This is Barb McQuaid. She is an analyst with MSNBC and she t she tweets this. She says, Intel reports say Russia is trying to stoke chaos in U.S. before election. Mission accomplished. I'm wondering your response to that and the historical precedent that this kind of talk has that was a recent that was a recent tweet that was from uh that was from may 30th really yeah. wow far out <laughs> well i mean I, i'm i'm gobsmacked i'm staggered i mean does she think that russia created white supremacy in the united states of america does she think that russia that George Chauvin, excuse me, Derek Chauvin was an agent of Moscow when he decided to kill George Floyd on camera? Does she feel that the outrage being expressed from the Atlantic to the Pacific is a product of the hidden hand of Moscow? 
I mean, this was ludicrous. This was laughable. But it should be taken seriously because it's a way to discredit protests. It's a way to discredit campaigns against white supremacy. And it's a throwback to the long departed era of campaigns against Jim Crow when you had Dixiecrats claiming that their Negroes were perfectly content until these outside agitators came into the community and with others supposedly more high flown in Washington claiming that the outside agitators were basically pawns of Moscow. I thought that that era had basically disappeared with the disintegration of the former Soviet Union, but uh, I guess I was wrong. And let me ask you about China as well. As all this is happening in the U.S. and all this harrowing footage of police officers beating protesters, shooting at them, tear gassing them, running them over, you're having the U.S. still in this, you know, deepening confrontation with China and targeting China for what it alleges are human rights abuses, especially in Hong Kong. So just recently, uh, under a law passed by uh, in, in bipartisan fashion, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo um, certified that Hong Kong is no longer deserving of special trade privileges because of China's uh, reimposing control over Hong Kong, Pompeo alleges. And Nancy Pelosi uh, put out a statement saying this, among other things. She says, if America does not speak out for human rights in China because of commercial interests, we lose all moral authority to speak out elsewhere. I'm wondering if you can comment on the overall posture right now of the U.S. towards China, especially in the context of its current wave of, of domestic repression of protesters in the U.S. And, uh, and the issue of Hong Kong. Well, first of all, that statement from Nancy Pelosi is no surprise. She's been a longtime hawk when it comes to Beijing. And apparently she's influenced the presumptive Democratic nominee, Joseph Biden, who probably needed no influence because he's been trying to outflank Mr. Trump on the right, which I think is basically a fool's errand. I think that I was, uh, I think that we should really focus on that vote that took place in the Congress just a few days ago, where by a total of, I think, 413 to 1, including a significant percentage of members of the Progressive Caucus and the Congressional Black Caucus, there was a vote to sanction China concerning alleged human rights violations in Western China. Now, my comment on that, particularly to members of the Progressive Caucus and the CBC, is that what they should be trying to do is work with China and Venezuela and Cuba and Iran and Russia with regard to sanctioning U.S. leaders who are presently engaged in a bloodbath in the streets of these United States of America. And I dare say that there's a distinct possibility that these House members who voted in such a wrong-headed fashion will be punished at the polls come November. I should also say this, and I would hope that your program could play a role in, in this, what I'm about to say. Uh, that is to say, if you go back a few decades, the Entente, between Washington and the city then known as Peking in the early 1970s was considered to be a master stroke of diplomacy by Secretary of State Henry Kissinger and President Richard M. Nixon. But what it did was that it opened the door to massive foreign direct investment in China, which has now created a juggernaut that bids fair to be in the passing lane 
leaving U.S. imperialism sprawling in the dust. What your program needs to do, I think, and other programs like yours, if there are any, is to basically put that particular chapter in history in the context of what's going on today, because both involve an overdetermination of Moscow. The alliance between Washington and China in the early 1970s was seen as a way to encircle the former Soviet Union. And it has led directly to this present confrontation between China and the United States, because now China has been able to use that foreign capital and domestic labor to build a budding superpower. I think that the progressive forces, and in particular in the Congressional Black Caucus, should now be going to the U.S. ruling class and say, be careful with the kinds of diplomatic alliances that you help to engage, and certainly be more self-critical when it comes to your present deteriorating diplomatic position. So let me follow up on that. How should the progressive left in the U.S. right now be approaching China? As you say, there is a trend in Congress to pretty much go along with the bipartisan narrative of confrontation. What should the progressive left be doing differently? And what does it need to learn? What misconceptions does it have to about China does it have to discard in order to get on, in your view, uh, a more correct course? Well, the first lesson it needs to learn is to reiterate something I've already said, which is they should be steering clear of this overdetermination of Moscow, which has led to this Russiagate fiasco. Secondly, with regard, and that means simply not to uh, not to elevate Russia as this uh, mortal adversary that needs to be crushed. Well, not only that, but to see the hidden hand of Moscow with regard to obvious U.S. failings, such as police brutality, white supremacy, etc. Second of all, with regard to Hong Kong, the progressive left needs to recognize that one country, two systems does not mean one country, two sovereigns, and that if China wants to pass a national security law that encompasses the special administrative region that is Hong Kong, and let me say parenthetically that uh, I taught at the Hong Kong University more than two decades ago, that that particular national security law should be seen in the same way that the United States decides to put uh, FBI offices in Los Angeles in Houston. And thirdly, it seems to me that this trying to ignite a new Cold War so as to hype Pentagon spending, which is the certain import of what's going on with regard to China today, is basically a disastrous bargain. Uh, pay careful and close attention to what Marshall Billingsley, the U.S. and Trump team arms control negotiators, said with regard to the United States seeking to pull out of this open skies treaty. He said that the United States knows how to bankrupt countries through military spending, an obvious reference in his uh, rather wacky view of history to the demise of the Soviet Union. And supposedly, the United States is going to try to bankrupt China <laughs> with regard to military spending. That we uh, have a tried and true practice here. We know how to win these races, and we know how to spend the adversary into, uh, into, into oblivion. Uh, if we have to, we will but uh, we sure would like to avoid it. So here you have this uh, very curious unfolding where the United States and the Treasury Department goes to the People's Bank of China to get the People's Bank of China to buy treasury bills, i.e. loans to the United States government, 
that the United States government can then use to build up a military industrial complex to weaken China. That seems to me to be an unsustainable system. And I would hope that the progressive caucus in Congress and the Congressional Black Caucus would be first in line to say so. And you mentioned Venezuela earlier. So let me ask you about recently you had Iran help breaking a blockade effectively on Venezuela by shipping in uh, fuel aboard tankers. And as we are discussing domestic repression in the U.S. and white supremacy, how should we be looking at issues like Venezuela also from the point of view of white supremacy? And, and, and do we often, especially on the left, sometimes sort of stop looking at white supremacy when it ends at our own borders? And should we stop doing that? Should we also be looking at and analyzing issues like Venezuela where the U.S. is trying to impose a new government and dominate the country as it has for a long time, also from the lens of white supremacy? Well, clearly so. I mean, I don't find it to be accidental at all that Venezuela, by some measures, is seen not only as a country that has a people of color majority, but by some measures has a population that is uh, majority black. And it has been in the reflex of U.S. imperialism and U.S. settler colonialism, uh, going back to the initial invasion by European settlers hundreds of years ago, to treat the uh, people of color and to treat anybody not of uh, European descent as being second class and third class and only fit to be crushed under the heel of Washington. And certainly I think that that's what's happening with regard to Venezuela today, but I'm afraid to say that that particular philosophy is basically well past its shelf life, well past its expiration date. And it seems to me that with the assistance of Iran and China and Russia and Turkey too, by the way, that Venezuela will be able to survive, not to mention its comradely assistance from socialist Cuba. Coming back to the US, you have some people on the left calling for abolishing the police. What to you should be the demands of a movement that continues uh, in the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd? What should be the key demands? Well, it's interesting that that particular demand, I think, harks back to what happened in South Los Angeles post-1965. That is to say, there was an attempt that basically did not succeed to convert police officers into, into social workers, basically to see them not as an occupying army, which is their role today, but to see them as social workers who were friendly with the community, who, was help, who were helping to bring assistance and social welfare measures to the community. That's how I interpret this recent demand to abolish the police. I think that what it basically portends is transforming the police. And I think that that is possible if we organize sufficiently. And as you look at the landscape of organizing now, what to you are some of the main obstacles, hindrances that need to be overcome? Well, the main obstacles are clear. Uh, number one, we need a revived labor movement. Uh, as you know, I'm sure the labor movement during the previous historical epoch, epoch speaking of the Cold War, went all in with regards to anti-communism. Uh, in my book on Southern Africa, I talk about the turning point that was the Portuguese revolution of 1974. 
And the CIA agents in Lisbon were about to throw in the towel when the AFL-CIO representatives landed uh, in early May 1974 and basically said, man up, this battle is not over. And they sought, not unsuccessfully, to turn the tide. So obviously- Why were they, why, why were they involved in that? Well, as you probably know, the AFL-CIO has been an adjunct of the CIA, of U.S. foreign policy. Uh, they have these various offices uh, all over the globe that works hand in glove with the CIA. Now, supposedly, they're there to promote so-called free trade unionism, uh, which basically means class collaborationist trade unionism. It basically means anti-communist trade unionism. And despite a lot of rhetoric to the contrary, uh, even under the leadership of Rich Trumka, a former leader of the United Mine Workers of America, the AFL-CIO has not ditched altogether uh, that kind of sellout foreign policy. So it seems to me that progressive reform in the United States of America, it all starts with the labor movement. It all starts with organizations of working people, uh, hospital workers, subway workers, steel workers, auto workers, etc., who pulled, the, pulled their funds and pulled their muscle to create a mighty strength that's able to push back against the 1%. Recall that Martin Luther King, during his heyday, one of the reasons he was able to fly from Albany, Georgia, say to Chicago, was because of staunch support from the labor movement, not only the United Auto Workers, but the Hospital Workers Union in New York City. And so it seems to me it's gonna be very difficult to get any sort of progressive or reform-minded community-based organizations in place unless we have significant reform, if not radicalizing, of the top leadership of the AFL-CIO. And you know, if I recall correctly, I believe I've heard you make the argument before that over history in the US, that in times when the labor movement is crushed in the absence of an organizing force for workers, that actually then increases the power and the appeal for some of white supremacist groups. Oh, sure, as I was hinting uh, previously, when you have these class-based formations that are hampered or crushed, it creates fertile soil for the rise of narrow ideologies such as white supremacy. Let me also say this. I think in terms of this theme of our conversation, which is a critique of the left, I would also say that I think that the left has basically missed the boat on a fundamental point of U.S. history. That is to say that if you look at the history of settler colonialism, it was basically a class collaborationist project with poor Europeans oftentimes being funded by richer Europeans to cross the Atlantic. And then, of course, there was a kind of indentured servitude where they would work for seven years for next to nothing and then be unleashed to basically be foot soldiers as Native American land was seized and taken. And so it's incumbent upon the U.S. labor movement in particular to be vigilant concerning class collaborationism, because in some ways, this entire US project has been based upon that odious conception. Now, with regard to the enslaved Africans, for example, their project inevitably involved class conflict and class struggle. It was rare for enslaved Africans to collaborate with slave owners. In fact, one of the reasons why we're being crushed today to come full circle is that we're still fighting against the descendants of slave owners, and they're, speaking of the descendants of slave owners, still perceive us as an enemy. 
by the way, if you want to get a graphic view of what class collaboration involves, look at the movie Django Unchained and study carefully the Samuel L. Jackson character. The House Negro. Correct. That's a clear example of class collaboration. All right, Dr. Horn. Well, final words as these protests continue. Um, the officer in the George Floyd killing has been charged with third degree murder, but there are obviously demands for more arrests. There are three other officers involved in this, and there are calls for justice growing, not just in this case, but in countless cases of police abuses across the country. Your final words for us is how we should be thinking about this time going forward. Well, on the specific point, I think we need a careful investigation of the history of interactions between Derek Chauvin, and by the way, Chauvin, you might recall, is a name that was affixed to a mythical French officer two centuries ago who was so maniacally patriotic that his name was bequeathed to the English language that has given us chauvinism and chauvinistic. Mm. So this white chauvinist, Derek Chauvin, he needs to be examined with regard to his previous interactions with George Floyd, because supposedly they work at the same site. Right. And I would hope that the Hennepin County uh, prosecuting attorney would look into that, because you might get some insight as to why he was so callous in terms of his attempt to, quote, subdue, unquote, uh, Mr. Floyd. Uh, certainly, I think that this idea that this is third degree killing is something that is inflaming protesters, and it may be giving a hint that the prosecuting attorney is throwing in the towel even before the fight begins, which brings us, I'm afraid to say, to Amy Klobuchar, who has been mentioned as a possible running mate with Joseph Biden, the presumptive Democratic nominee for president. She is now currently the senator from Minnesota and was formerly a prosecuting attorney in Hennepin County with a terrible record with regard to prosecuting police abuse. It's an insult for Amy Klobuchar to even be considered for vice president, and it would be a dagger through the heart of the Democratic Party's chances of prevailing against Donald Trump in November 2020 if she is put on the ticket as vice president. We'll leave it there. Gerald Horn, Morris Professor of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston, author of more than three dozen books, including the forthcoming The Dawning of the Apocalypse. Dr. Horn, thanks very much. Thank you.